Heavenly Father, we've gathered here this morning with a deep desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know that cannot be done apart from the power of your Holy Spirit enabling us to hear, receive, and be rightly transformed. We're so thankful that you sent your Son to redeem sinners like us that we might repent, believe, be baptized, and then be indwelt by the Holy Spirit too. We praise you for saving us into a local church family like this, that we might gather on your day to pray to you, to sing to you, to hear your scripture read, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning, your children here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that you might show us the great freedom that we have in Christ. Not a freedom to sin, but a freedom to live in the righteousness and the power through the gospel that has been given. I pray, Father, that you would show us the great power we have to live, even this day, a holy life set apart for you. I ask, Lord, that you would use this time with your children that we might examine our hearts deeply, that we might not be fooled like Simon was, professing and being baptized and even joining a church, but not truly knowing Christ. We know, Lord, that these matters are a matter of the heart and so cause us to examine our hearts deeply today that we might stand firm knowing that Christ will hold us fast because He truly does love us. I ask that You would do that, Father, for my brothers and sisters, for myself, but above all else, for Your glory. Bring great clarity from this text to those who may be confused by it. Show us, Lord, your mercy and love in Jesus, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I missed you last Sunday. It's a very strange thing. It's been 26 years that I've been here now and at the pulpit for almost 20. And whenever I'm not here on Sunday, it's like I'm, you know, like I'm playing hooky or something, you know? Like you're, you're faking being sick. I, I did that as a kid. I faked being sick and then didn't go to school. I didn't feel bad about that, um, but it's so good to be here with you today and to be able to look again at, uh, at Acts chapter 8. If you don't have your Bibles open, please do so. I want you to be looking at these words with your own eyes. Um, these, are, these are strange times. Uh, I think most historians would argue the same. Most people living throughout human history have argued their times are strange, um, so that's not uncommon, but these are definitely difficult and strange times, particularly in the West. Um, we live in a time when the wisdom of man tells us that um, the struggles that we have, the pain that we go through, the longings that we really deeply want in life, they're all a product of what's happening to us rather than what's happening in us. In other words, the contemporary culture tells us that the way to overcome pain and suffering and those longings is to go out and change your circumstances. Do something on the outside to change the way you feel on the inside. So if you're lonely, the counsel would be get married. If you're depressed, the counsel would be indulge yourself. If you're anxious, well, take medications. If you're dissatisfied in life, change your marriage, change your spouse, change your job, change your house, change your body, change your address. Just do something on the outside to change the way you are on the inside. But if you know the Bible, the Bible comes along and tells us very clearly that it's not what's on the outside that's the problem. It's what's on the inside of you and me. 
Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 15, 19. He said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, and you can add to that list yourselves. All our struggles, all our anxieties, all the unfulfilled longings that lead to the sins of murder and adultery and sexual immorality and lying, they're all the products of hearts enslaved by sin. They all start on the inside. The pain and the suffering is a result of our hearts not being right with God. So the wisdom of God comes along and says, instead of looking to the outside to try to fix what's on the inside, the wisdom of God comes along and says, go to the root of the problem. Go to the heart. Go to the gospel. Because apart from the power of the gospel and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, and apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, your heart remains the same and everything remains the same. All the suffering, all the pain, all the anxiety, all the longings that are never fulfilled do not change apart from Jesus Christ. That's an absolute. This morning, as we continue in Acts, we will see those who had truly been redeemed by God. They believed, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. Their hearts had been truly changed by God in Christ through His Spirit. And then we will see Simon A man who professed, a man who was baptized, a man who went on mission with Philip. But in the end, we realize that Simon's heart remained the same. He never truly knew the freedom that Christ grants. So I'd like to examine these two examples. Freedom in Christ and slavery in sin by looking at three things from our text. Number one, the end of slavery. Number two, the confirmation of freedom. And number three, the consequences of the heart. The end of slavery The confirmation of freedom. How do I know that I'm free? And number three, the consequences of the heart which really bring about all this. If there were a theme for the sermon to be this, true freedom requires a new heart. True freedom requires a new heart in Jesus Christ. So if you feel at all bound this morning, bound by your sin, bound by your anxiety, bound by the circumstances you've tried to change that you cannot, then this is a good day to be here because the word has hope for you this day and every day going forward. Point number one, the end of slavery. So Philip, as we know, he was one of the Hellenistic Jews selected to be um, one of those seven that were feeding the, the widows and providing for provision for them. Stephen is executed. The Hellenistic Jews flee Jerusalem and they start to make their way out to Samaria and Judea, which is gonna push out to uh, the Western world. And Philip ends up in Samaria, as we saw two weeks ago, and he's proclaiming to them, look at verse 5, he proclaimed to the Samaritans, he proclaimed to them the Christ, and he did this with many many powerful signs. Look at verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And then we're told in verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. So Philip goes to Samaria, Samaria, and, and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He talks about the kingdom of God coming. People believe. People are being baptized. And there's joy in the city. And it's just a fantastic moment. And then Luke says, and, and there's someone else there. There's a, a man by the name of Simon. And he's now competing with Philip. Simon, otherwise Philip was not alone in the miraculous work being done by God. Simon was there doing many powerful things as well. And according to Luke, he had great sway over the people. Look at verse nine. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. 
saying that he himself was somebody great. (laughs) That's funny. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And so Luke introduces Simon, not arbitrarily, but he wants to juxtapose Luke. He want, Luke wants to juxtapose Philip, who's there practicing the power of God, doing many great signs, with Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, who's also doing many great signs, but not in God's name. And we're told that Simon amazed the people and had done so for quite some time. In other words, he was a, a really good magician. He wasn't the kind of guy that would come in and do a sleight of hand, take their money, and then leave the next day. He had established a following in Samaria. In fact, we're told in verse 10 that he had convinced most Samaritans from the least to the greatest. And so even the old wise folk that were there believed that Simon had the power of God. And that that either meant they believed that the work he was doing was from God himself, or some actually argued that they believed that Simon was a manifestation of God or a demagogue of sorts. And so they elevated him to a Messiah-like status. So convincing was Simon that he convinced himself. Look at verse 9b. He said that he himself was somebody great. Don't underestimate the power of sin and the delusion that can come upon the person who believes that which is not true. Now, in the first century, the term magi or magic or magician, we think of it, and you may be thinking of someone like on on America's Got Talent. Um, it, It included astrologers, soothsayers, sorcerers, incantations, charms, tarot card reading. You throw the whole lot in there. And that's the understanding of a magi in the first century. And, and this Simon was good. I mean, he pulled off some amazing things, just as many magicians do today. And he likely did that not just by deception and sleight of hand, but likely because he was being moved by demonic forces. Uh, given Simon's influence, it, li- it was likely he had help from friends below. So Philip and Simon are competing for the same audience. He's competing, Luke says three times, for their attention. The same audience from the same attention. It's very reminiscent of Moses, is it not? Moses goes into Egypt and he performs the signs before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, bring my guys out and they perform the signs too. Or it might be like Elijah at Mount Carmel when the prophets and the priests of Baal came down. And they're each performing their signs. Well, God, just like he did with Moses and Elijah, he would have the last word through Philip. Look at verse 12. But, so here's the contradistinction, but when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they, the Samaritans, were baptized, both men and women. So both Philip and Simon are there in Samaria performing signs and miracles and wonders, except Simon's doing it for his own name and his own glory. Philip is there preaching, look at it again, the good news about the kingdom and what? The name of Jesus Christ. So all the work and all the miracles that Simon was able to exercise is because of the proclamation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that God had given him. That the kingdom of God had come through the life, death, and resurrection of this God-man, Jesus Christ. And so Philip is telling them, this Jesus is now seated upon the throne. And now that he's seated upon the throne, he has all authority on heaven and earth. And that means even for you Samaritans. Remember, the Samaritans were considered half-bred Remember from two weeks ago? They were looked upon by the Jews as being cursed by God. 
And Philip is saying, even though you may believe that you are God forsaken, and even though the Jews may believe you are God forsaken, Jesus Christ sits upon the throne and he is here testifying through Philip and offering forgiveness for your sins and enters back into the kingdom. In other words, Philip is proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the lost in Samaria. He offered them hope, even though they engaged in a perverted religion. And even though they engaged in temple sacrifices where there was no real temple and there were no real priests, but by grace through faith in him, in Christ, his body, his blood upon the cross, many could be saved and many believed. Many believed. So they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, and they were baptized, both men and women. In other words, they were no longer under the influence of Simon. Simon had great sway from the youngest to the oldest, but now Philip comes, he preaches Christ, many believe, many are baptized, and no longer are they enslaved to the charlatan Simon. They were now under the influence of a truly great man. Paul describes him in Philippians 2, this Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, you know, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the great man. That's the greatest man. So they had come under the influence of the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, the perfectly humble man who endured the cross to set their enslaved sinful hearts free, to set them free. And so the multitudes following the false prophets then, very much like today, have an opportunity to be set free in Christ. Free to live how? As God created us to live. As image bearers. Those who worship God and receive glory from God. And as a result, we're able to love God and we're able to love one another. We're able to serve one another. God created us for his glory to that end. And once Christ sets us free, we can live as the free people we're supposed to be. Not free to sin, but free to righteousness. Luke tells us that in verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We'll circle back to Simon's profession of faith and his baptism in the last point, but what I don't want us to miss here is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to set us free from the magicians of our own age and from the magicians of our own hearts. Deceivers today are everywhere, you hear about them, you read them, you watch them. Those that are trying to captivate our attention with false hopes and false aspirations and false promises. Now you might think, Pastor, we live in the postmodern era. We live in the Western world where we worship science and empiricism. We don't believe in any of this magic anymore. Well, if you think that, you would be very, very wrong. Pew Research this is a recent poll. This is amazing. 62% of American adults, 62%, two-thirds believe in one or more of the following, spiritual energy, psychics, reincarnation, and astrology. 62% of our scientific people. 42% believe that psychics, just like Simon, can provide real supernatural answers. 42% of American adults surveyed in this poll. And for the nuns, those with no particular religious preference, for the nuns, that number goes up to 80%. 80% believing that psychics have real power. 
Now, this was all borne out. These statistics were borne out during the pandemic. When most small businesses during the pandemic were struggled, are struggling still, and had to shut down, the demand for astrologers, tarot card readers, and energy healers, I don't even know what that is, skyrocketed during the pandemic. In fact, the word psychic, listen to this, jumped to a one-year high on the Google search trends on the week of March 8, 2020, the exact same week the CDC began issuing guidances for COVID-19 Warning against social distancing, wearing a mask, and staying indoors. Exact same week. CDC says, you better stay at home. People got on Google and said, i got to find a psychic. Spiritualism, incantations, magical powers are alive and well in the American West. Now, for most Christians, you'd say, well, I don't believe in any of that. Our Simons are a little more deceptive, are they not? I mean, we gravitate to doctors with medical degrees who tell us they have all the answers, and we believe them because they have a white coat. Or we give our undivided attention to a get-rich get scheme or that retirement strategy that your financial advisor guaranteed that if you follow this plan at 55, you'll be able to retire and play golf in Florida somewhere. We turn to the Simons of entertainment, the Simons of food and sex and work by giving our attention to the things of this world because the things of this world tell us they can satisfy our hungers, they can quench our thirst, they can bring us the lasting joy and peace that we really want and fill that deep longing in our soul. That longing that you keep running after, you keep trying to get, but it's always elusive apart from Christ. You work harder, but you cannot get it. Thankfully, through the good news, verse 12 again, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, you too, just like the Samaritans, you can what? You can hear, you can repent, you can believe, and you can be baptized. You can be set free from the Simons of your own heart. You can be set free from the bondage of sin that causes you to listen to all the false prophets and all the false teachers and all the false promises that are made. You don't have to remain enslaved to your sins or the sins of others. You can this day by grace confess in Jesus Christ as Lord, the greatest man of all time, and find freedom for your heart, for your mind, and for your soul. That's good news, my beloved. This is one of those sermons where I could end on point one. He said, that's good news. The end of slavery by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So point number one, the power of the gospel to end slavery. The question I think that arises for most of us, especially in light of this passage, how do I know I've been truly set free? Simon believed, Simon was baptized, Simon was part of the church. His end is not good, and it's not, as we'll see in the next point. How do we know that we have, as most of us as pagans, inherited the promises of Abraham? How do we know that the gospels come to us. Point number two, a prayer is still with me. The confirmation of freedom. How do I know? What confirmation can I have, can you have, that we truly are in Christ? Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, Then they laid hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the mission to the Samaritans, beginning with Philip, was now going to be confirmed by God. Listen, 
confirmed by God and by God's church. The apostles are back in Jerusalem. They get word that many of the Samaritans are believing through the testimony of Philip. And so the apostles send none other than Peter and John. I mean, these are, these are the guys you want to send, right? These are pillars in the church. If we want to know that God's doing a work in Samaria, we're going to send Peter and John as our messengers, and they're going to tell us whether or not it's true. Now, if you remember from the gospel accounts, in the gospel of Luke chapter 9, John in particular, and his brother James, were not too fond of the Samaritans. You remember their request in Luke chapter 9? Remember the Samaritans did not want to receive Jesus, and then John and James had the audacity to say this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's not love. Jesus rightly rebuked them. He turned to them and he rebuked them. Now, several years later, we see the testimony of a transformed heart. Instead of wanting to call down fire upon them to destroy them, John goes with Peter to call the Holy Spirit to descend upon them and dwell in them, to bring them into the family of God. Such a great illustration of how the heart can change from wanting destruction and death to wanting eternal life for those that were once enemies. Luke tells us that Peter and John went down and prayed for them, verse 15, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They had already believed, made a profession of faith. They were already baptized in the name of Jesus. And and so Peter and John don't say, let me hear the profession again. Let me baptize you again. They don't do any of that. They just ask God to, they simply pray to God, pour out your spirit. And they're praying for God to pour out his spirit in a very particular way, in an act to Pentecostal way. Because they, remember, they were sent there to validate that God was saving people in Samaria. They were sent there to affirm, bring back to the church, yes, God is saving Samaritans, which would have been very difficult for Jews to actually believe. So after they prayed, verse 17, they laid their hands on them, the Samaritans, and the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Samaritans very much like it was poured out on the day of Pentecost when those had gathered and listened to Peter's sermon. Um, Many of the commentators say it's the Samaritan Pentecost, and 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 I think that's right. It's God affirming, listen, God affirming their profession of faith in Jesus Christ and their baptism by the visible display of the Holy Spirit descending upon a once hated people. The struggle many, I think, have with this text is it's, it's somewhat different. It's an anomaly in the book of Acts because you have this time lag between their belief in baptism and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, what we have in Acts are, are five things you always see when it comes to someone being saved. You have confession, you have repentance, you have faith, you have baptism, and you have the Holy Spirit. And they're always there. Whenever an individual or a group's being saved, those five elements are there. Here we have four, but not the fifth. We have confession, repentance, faith, and baptism, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come until after the apostles arrive. And it is an anomaly in the book of Acts, and so we don't want to use this as a normative means. Uh, And the question is why? Why would God do it this way in this particular circumstance? And and, and many of the commentators argue this, and I, I think they're right. He wanted to display a Samaritan Pentecost. He wanted to do something in Samaria like he had done in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost through Peter. In other words, he knew. He knew how hard it was going to be for Jews 
and those in the Jerusalem church to believe that God was saving the Samaritans. They were unsavable. They were cursed. They were not people that belonged in the family of God. And so through the, through the Samaritan Pentecost, God is revealing to everybody involved, the Jerusalem church, the apostles, the Samaritans, the Gentiles yet to be saved, that yes, in fact, God is saving people that are not Jews. He's going beyond Jerusalem. He's revealing the trajectory. He, what is he doing? He's actually, in God sending the Holy Spirit at, um, to the Samaritans, he's affirming what Jesus said in, in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it makes sense that this second Pentecost, the Samaritan Pentecost, would actually happen. It was a major step in salvation history. We sit here on the other side of the world as Gentiles, saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, and we think this is normal. This was not normal in the first views of the church. Abraham's children were to be saved, and they were still thinking bloodline through Abraham, not bloodline through Christ. So this was a major step in salvation history and an absolutely necessary step to affirm that, in fact, God was going to save non-Jews. You're a testimony to that if you know Jesus Christ. So he pours out his Holy Spirit to remove all doubt that the promised reign of David's kingdom, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, was not constrained to a little strip of land, and those who came from the bloodline of Abraham, the plan of God to redeem a people for his glory, has always been a global plan. It's always been an historical plan. It was intended to go to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that is being fulfilled here. That first major step, not in Jerusalem, not with Jews, Jews in Samaria, with Samaritans. God saving them. And what? He's making them children of Abraham. He's adopting them into the family of God. And they are equally sons and daughters. Not greater than or less than those who came to a saving grace at Pentecost a few years earlier. It's an extraordinary movement in the history of the church. And although the Samaritan experience of conversion may not have been typical, either in its order or its timing, the key elements are the same and have been throughout human history. Confession, repentance, faith, baptism, and the Holy Spirit are there when someone is made alive. They're always there, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, repenting of your sins and turning to God, putting your faith in Christ to save you from the judgment that is to come, being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then receiving the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, the power of the Holy Spirit to guide you, to comfort you, your counselor and your light. They're always there. So just as the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John to affirm the Samaritan profession, the local church, so here's a little ecclesiology for you. I know we don't do this much from the pulpit. The local church is equipped and called by God to do the exact same. Hearing the credibility of one's profession, observing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and bringing them into covenant membership in a local church is what we are still called to do. This goes all the way back to Peter and John being sent out by the church in Jerusalem to Samaria to verify. Yes, the profession is real. Yes, the Holy Spirit is present. Yes, the fruit is being born. And they became part of the Samaritan church. So cool. 2,000 years. The keys of the kingdom. 
that we talked about a few weeks ago in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 still exist today, that we receive members into covenant community based upon profession and fruit. And so, going back to the question that started the second point, how do you know? How do you know you're not like Simon? How do you know that you haven't made a profession and got baptized and maybe even joined a local church like this and you're still outside of the covenant community of God? Well, the Bible gives us a prescription and how we are to know that we're not bound by sin. We truly have been set free in Christ. One, this may shock several in the Western world, it's being affirmed by Christians in a gospel-centered, Bible-proclaiming, Christ-focused church. The church affirms Someone's profession of faith. In the Western world, we think it's, we think it's just us. You know, I, I went down on my knees, I prayed the prayer, I read my Bible, therefore I know. Maybe, maybe not. The Bible gives that authority to the local community of believers to say, yeah, that's a real profession. They truly do know who Christ is, and we see fruit in their life. And so the same means that the Jerusalem church used to verify the Samaritans, we are to use today to listen closely, to understand that the profession is real and that it's actually in the real, historical, biblical Jesus, not an idol. And then to know them well enough to go, yeah, we see fruit in their life. We see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. We see those things being manifest. And therefore, there's reason to believe that you do know the Lord. And that's something that we want, right? And we want to know that we're not Simon's. Simon was deceived. He deceived himself. There are many who have gathered in churches across this land and this world, in churches like this, who have deceived themselves. How can you know? Through the church and through the Holy Spirit. Same then as it is today. So one, we have seen the end of slavery. Two, how we can know that the freedom that we have is real freedom, that we have been set free. The last point I want to look at is the consequences of the heart because these are both hard issues. Being enslaved to sin and being set free in Christ both come down to the heart. Point number three, the consequences of the heart. After describing the apostles' prayers, their laying on of hands, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Luke returns to our magician Simon. And he does so, now listen, he does so, I believe, to juxtapose those who had truly been saved by grace through faith in Christ and were born again and someone like Simon, who had what we call a said faith, said, S-A-I-D. Say, he said it with his mouth, he got baptized, but it was not a saving faith, it was not a true faith. We get a glimpse of Simon's heart all the way back in verse 12. When Luke is describing the multitudes who are being saved, look at verse 12 again. This is how, this is how Luke describes the multitudes. He said, they believed Philip, As Philip what? As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, the multitudes heard the gospel, they heard the proclamation of Jesus and the kingdom, and they repented and they believed and they were baptized. And then Luke does something very interesting here. And if we're not careful with the language, we might miss it. Look at verse 13. The emphasis on Simon's conversion is different. He writes this, verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, not attaching it to verse 12, After being baptized, he continued with Philip, now listen, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, Simon was amazed. Simon was amazed. Simon made a profession. Simon was baptized along with all the others. But what was it that amazed Simon? 
What got his attention? What grabbed Simon's heart? The word amazed in the Greek, it literally means to remove from a standing or fixed position. Simon was blown away. What blew him away? The proclamation of the gospel? The kingdom of God? Jesus Christ? No, look at verse 13. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was blown away. What compelled Simon to believe and be baptized was not the gospel or the person of Jesus Christ. It was the power of God being exercised through Philip and the apostles. Remember, this is Simon the sorcerer. This is Simon the magician. That's power he wants. Because I've never seen anything like this. I want that power. And so, in his sinful heart, he tries to buy it. It's, it's one of the most comical and tragic requests, I think, in the book of Acts. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, so he's making this deduction. It's their hands. They have power in their hands. This is his deduction. He offered them, the apostles, money. Verse 19, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's old man, his old sorcerer-like self, is alive and well. We see that here. It was not uncommon, by the way, for magicians in the first century to sell their tricks to one another. And if it was a good trick, you could get a lot of money for it. And so after watching Philip and the apostles use their hands and seeing the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit being poured out, it was very likely, very similar to Acts 2. They were likely speaking in tongues and praising God. He sees this and he goes up to Peter and John and goes, hey, hey, here's some silver, here's some money. I want that too. I want that trick. I don't know how you do it, but it's effective. Give it to me. You, you know the word simony, or some people pronounce it simony. In the English, it means to try to buy either a religious office, to buy or sell a religious office or a religious power. Um, Simon's trying to buy spiritual power. That's why we get the word from Simon, simony. Now, Simon may have had a high view of himself. Remember, he said of himself that he was somebody great, but he obviously had a very, very low view or understanding of God. He did not understand that the Holy Spirit he wants to buy power from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the holy triune God. Truly God. And Simon wants to <coughs> pay him money. Bribe him a bit. He didn't understand that nothing God has is for sale. Nothing God has is for sale. God owns everything. God is the creator of all that is seen and unseen. He didn't understand that grace is free. And the power of God working these miracles through Philip and the apostles was done by grace through faith. Not Philip and the apostles didn't, didn't buy this power. They didn't go to God at Pentecost and say, here's some silver, give us this power that we might share with others. Simon saw, listen very, very closely, Simon saw the power of God as something to be purchased and then wanted to use it for his own glory instead of the glory of God. In other words, Simon wanted God's power, but Simon did not want God. He wanted God's power, but he did not want God. Now, you may be shaking your head and thinking to yourself as a good evangelical Christian, poor Simon, what a fool. Before you, before you give yourself spiritual whiplash, my beloved, let's ask ourselves how often we engage in this divine spiritual bargaining. I would say more often than not, we seek God's power, we seek God's comfort, or we seek God's help not to worship God, but to get something from God. 
We know he's powerful. We know he's our father. We know that he loves us, but we go to him to get something from him rather than to be with him, to know him. Have you ever in prayer? Be honest with yourself. Have you ever in prayer said, Lord, I will stop doing this sin if you're going to bargain with God? If, Lord, you get me that job, get me that spouse, get me that house, get me out of this financial trouble, I'll stop this sin if you do this for me. Have you ever agreed to be more faithful in the word, more faithful in prayer, more faithful as a member of a covenant church if God healed your body or cared for your loved one or maybe even saved a good friend. Maybe you put the gospel on the line and said, Lord, I will pray harder and I'll read my Bible if you save my spouse or save my children. My beloved, whenever we do this, even in the smallest way, we're engaging in spiritual simony. It's all we're doing, just like Simon. We're trying to purchase from God which God gives freely by grace through faith to all who repent and believe. How often, my beloved, if we were to be truly honest, do you, do you want the power of God? You want comfort from him when you're hurting? You want the promises when you're desperate? You want his provision when you're lacking in something more than you want God himself? I think underneath the, the evangelical perspective is we say God first, we love God first with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but when it comes down to how we live and how we pray, more often than not, it's just like Simon. We want the things of God, but we don't want God. And that's borne out in how we pray. That's borne out in how we do not spend time in the Word. That's borne out in how we do not gather to worship God, to be in His presence, because we want Him. The power's great, the comfort's great, the blessings are great, But for the true Christian who's been saved by grace, we want God. We want God. And the other things come as a result of the blessing. So I think that if we were to be honest, we're more like Simon than we want to admit. Simon's heart is fully exposed. And so Peter offers a severe, and it is severe, but it is a loving gospel rebuke. Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Some of us hear that and think, wow, Peter, I'm glad you're not here as a member of this church. Peter refuses the offer and he condemns Simon and Simon's money to destruction, literal destruction. And then he explains why in verse 21, look. He says to Simon, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. He's talking about in the gospel ministry. For your heart is not right before God. He says, Simon, you can't can't give the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't give the gospel because you don't have it yourself. Your heart is still dead. It's not right before God. It's dead in its sins. The old man is still alive. In other words, Peter's saying you're still a sorcerer at heart. You're still a sorcerer at heart. You may have professed Christ. You may have been baptized. You may have been following Philip all around. But deep down, you know you're still a sorcerer. You haven't been born again. And so what does Peter do? He's saying, right, away from me, Simon. No, Peter wants his soul. Look at what Peter says. Peter calls Simon to repent, verse 22. He says to Simon, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, the attempt to buy God's power, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart, your desire to use God's power for your own glory, may be forgiven. So Peter calls for, maybe for the first time, full repentance, a true salvation, in Christ, confessing his sins, turning from them, and being redeemed. 
Peter gives this really harsh call because Peter knows that the problem is not a besetting sin of Simon. It's not just an old habit. You know, it's an old sorcerer's habit. When we see something cool, we want to buy it. He knows, Peter knows, the problem is Simon's heart. The problem is Simon's soul. Look at verse 23. Peter explains to him, for I see, now this is prophetic in nature, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness, that literally translates the bitter center of bitterness. In other words, Simon was filled with an embittered, resentful spirit. He wanted that power. He didn't have it. And so he's trying to get it through money. And then Peter said, you remain in the bond of iniquity. In other words, he's saying you're still enslaved to sin. You have not been set free. You professed faith. You got baptized. But what you're showing me right now is that you don't know who this Christ truly is. His situation is dire. Simon's is dire. Right? He's, he's presented himself as a believer in Christ. He's been incorporated in the context of the church in Samaria. <clears throat> and Peter's saying, I don't think you know him. I don't think you know him, Simon. And so, out of his love for Simon, Peter speaks these very, very hard truths of God's word. My beloved, listen, you need at least one true Peter in your life. And it can't be your spouse. You need maybe two or three or four Peters in your life. <clears throat> Those who love you and love your soul so much that they're going to be willing to come to you and speak really hard truths, saying to you, your heart's not right before God when they see you engaged in sin like this. Um, if you don't have a Peter like that, get a Peter quickly. Get a Peter quickly because Simon thought that he was in he was really out. Simon thought that he was free and he was still bound by his iniquity. Simon answered, here's the response, verse 24. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now the commentators, are, they're really split on this. Some say that, that Simon is displaying a sense of brokenness and humility. I mean, he's actually asking for the power of an apostolic prayer that God would not allow these things to happen. Others believe that he's dismissing Peter's counsel. Uh, even being sarcastic. Some argue he's mocking it. I, I don't think he's mocking it, but it's not, we know, we know it's not biblical repentance, right? All he says is, I don't want these bad things to happen to me. Well, you don't have to be saved to ask for that. If someone says to you, oh, these are the, these are the things that have come about as a result of your actions and they're bad, you say, I don't want that. What we don't see here is a biblical response to a biblical rebuke. We don't see confession. We don't see self-examination. We don't see repentance, turning away from the sin and turning to God. We don't see faith in God to forgive the sins through Jesus Christ. There's nothing here except a request for these horrible things not to happen. That's a fleshly response. In other words, even though Simon made a profession of faith, got baptized, and joined the church, he never grasped the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. He didn't get the gospel. He wanted God's power, but he did not want God. My beloved, Simon, like us, when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, he didn't want God. He wanted to use God. He wanted to buy God's power so that he could lay his hands upon people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, loved God the Father infinitely, and gave up his glory and power in heaven so he could lay his hands on a Roman cross. 
and in so doing that anyone who repent and put their faith in Him would actually receive the Holy Spirit. Simon tried to buy the power, tried to buy the power of God the Holy Spirit with silver, but Peter denied him. Judas tried to buy the crucifixion of God the Son with silver, and for your sake he succeeded. You say, well, how is it for my sake? On the cross, Jesus experienced the gall of your bitterness and the bondage of your iniquity so that sinful hearts like ours, not right before God, could be made right with God, washed, clean, circumcised under the new covenant forever. And with your heart made new by the Holy Spirit through faith in the Son, my beloved, here's the great news and I'll close. You can stop the madness in your own life. You can stop the madness in your own heart and in your own soul. You can stop trying to overcome all the pain and all the suffering and all the anxiety and all the unfulfilled desires by trying to change the circumstances in your life. That's insanity, by the way. It doesn't mean there aren't things that you should be doing, but if you're gonna try to solve a heart issue by manipulating the circumstances of your life, it will never be resolved. Heart issues must be resolved with heart solutions. Simon thought this. Simon thought, if I can, if I can get my hands to have that same power that Philip and the apostles have, if I can get that, I'll be satisfied. I'll be the greatest magician in the land. He was wrong. He was dreadfully wrong. Even if he had received the power, he would not have been satisfied. He would have wanted more power. Only being in a right, loving relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and then nourishing that relationship daily, can someone be truly, deeply, permanently satisfied? Only in Christ, my beloved, can you experience the freedom that God offers through the gospel of grace. True freedom. I'm afraid that many of us still are bound because we haven't grasped the power of Christ to love and to save. When I say true freedom, I mean, I mean no longer bound by sin. I'm not talking about sinlessness or perfectionism. You will still stumble, you will still fall, but in Christ, you can be set free from the bondage of sin. Your heart can be. No longer awaiting final judgment. Peter's warning to Simon was, you better repent immediately so that you don't perish eternally. What Simon did was really bad on earth, but the consequences were much worse in eternity. No longer bound by the wisdom of this world, seeking all the answers from all the magicians and all the, the false teachers and false prophets of our age, but instead seeking the wisdom of God. Who is the wisdom of God? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then resting in the completed work of our Savior. A completely different way to live, my beloved. All your problems, all your real problems, they all start in your heart. All your real problems. So rather than chasing after all the external solution the world offers, turn to Christ this morning and live and be set free. I'll read to you again Isaiah 55 and I'll pray. This is God. What a glorious command. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why? Because it's grace. It's free. Why do you spend your money 
for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, God says, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me, says God. Come to me here that what? That your soul may live. Amen? That's what we want to do this morning. Let's go to God, not with silver in hand trying to buy the things of God, but let's go to God to have God in Christ so that our souls may live and we may actually experience true freedom now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for forgiveness for being more like Simon than we want to admit. How often, Lord, do we go to you in prayer and even read Scripture desiring the things, the blessings that come from being in a relationship with you rather than the relationship itself. I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with my brothers and sisters. Be gracious with me. Reveal to us, Father, where we are still blind or we're still longing for things of this world that we think will satisfy the deeper recesses of our souls. Forgive us, Father, for listening to all the false prophets and magicians of our time, running after, chasing after, trying to acquire that which we have fully and infinitely in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning and that you would show us, Lord, that we can come to you. If we are thirsty, you will give us something to drink. If we are hungry, you will feed us. We can come to you without money because what you offer us is free in Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to listen to you diligently, that we would eat what is good, that we would delight ourselves in you and incline our ear to you even this morning. For your glory in Christ's name, amen.